There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me did seem appareled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore, turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen, I can now see no more. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose, the moon doth with delight look round her, when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth. But yet I know where I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. Now while the birds thus sing a joyous song, and while the young lambs bound as to the tabor sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. A timely utterance gave that thought relief, and again I am strong. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. No more shall grief of mine the season wrong. I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep, and all the earth is gay. Land and sea give themselves up to jollity, and with the heart of May doth every beast keep the holiday. Thou child of joy, shout round me. Let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. You blessed creatures, I have heard the call ye make you to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. My heart is at your festival, my head hath its coronal. The fullness of your bliss I feel, I feel it all. O oh, evil day, if I were sullen while earth herself is adorning this sweet May morning, and the children are culling on every side in a thousand valleys far and wide. Fresh flowers while the sun shines warm and the babe leaps up on his mother's arm. I hear, I hear, with joy I hear. But there's a tree of many one, a single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whether is fled the visionary gleam, where is it now the glory and the dream? Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar. Not an entire forgetfulness, and not an utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, but he beholds the light and whence it flows. He sees it in his joy. The youth, who daily farther from the east must travel, still is nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man perceives it die away, and fade into the light of common day. Earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own, yearning she hath in her own natural kind, and, even with something of a mother's mind, and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster-child, her inmate man, forget the glories he hath known, and that imperial palace whence he came. Behold the child among his newborn blisses, a six-year's darling of a pygmy size. See where, mid-work of his own hand, he lies, fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses, with light upon him from his father's eyes. See at his feet some little plan or chart, some fragment from his dream of human life, shaped by himself with newly learned art, a wedding or a festival, a mourning or a funeral. And this hath now his heart. And unto this he frames his song, then will he fit his tongue to dialogues of business, love, or strife. But it will not be long ere this be thrown aside, and with new joy and pride the little actor cons another part, 
filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage as if his whole vocation were endless imitation thou whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity thou best philosopher who yet dost keep thy heritage thou eye among the blind that deaf and silent reads the eternal deep haunted forever by the eternal mind mighty prophet seer blessed on whom those truths do rest which we are toiling all our lives to find and darkness lost the darkness of the grave thou over whom thy immortality broods like the day a master or a slave a presence which is not to be put by to whom the grave is but a lonely bed without the sense or sight of day or the warm light a place of thought where we in waiting lie thou little child yet glorious in the might of heaven-born freedom on thy being's height why with such earnest pains dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life O oh, joy that in our embers is something that doth live that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive the thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed delight and liberty the simple creed of childhood whether busy or at rest with new-fledged hope still fluttering in his breast. Not for these I raise the song of thanks and praise, but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized, high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. But for those first affections, those shadowy recollections, which, be they what they may, are yet the fountain light of all our day, are yet a master light of all our seeing. Uphold us, cherish, and have power to make our noisy years seem moments in the being of the eternal silence, truths that wake to perish never, which neither listlessness, nor mad endeavor, nor man, nor boy, nor all that is at enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy. Hence, in a season of calm weather, though inland far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither, can in a moment travel thither, and see the children sport upon the shore, and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. Then sing, ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song. Let the young lambs bound as to the tabor sound. We in thought will join your throng, ye that pipe and ye that play. Ye that through your hearts today feel the gladness of the May. What though the radiance which once was so bright be now forever taken from my sight. Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass or of glory in the flower. We will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. In the primal sympathy which having been must ever be. In the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering. In the faith that looks through death, in the years that bring the philosophic mind. And, O oh, ye fountains, meadows, hills, and groves, forebode not any severing of our loves. Yet in my heart of hearts I feel your might, 
I only have relinquished one delight to live beneath your more habitual sway. I love the brooks which down their channels fret even more than when I tripped lightly as they. The innocent brightness of a newborn day is lovely yet. The clouds that gather round the setting sun do take a sober coloring from the eye that hath kept watch o'er man's mortality. Another race hath been, and other palms are won, thanks to the human heart by which we live, thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears. To me the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. Thanks for downloading another Christian Humanist podcast. This is episode, what is it guys, at 95 or 96? I think it's 96. 96, we are approaching that magical 100 number. Uh, of course, our subject matter today is going to be that poem that you just heard that Michael, unfortunately, is going to have to edit heavily because of my incompetence. Uh, owed <laughs> intimations of immortality. I'll try to edit out your uh, quasi-swearing too, Nathan. Yeah, I- <laughs> yes, I do apologize for that. I ah gosh, and I rehearsed this poem so that I wouldn't have to make you edit too heavily, Michael. So I apologize. There but, are there are three thousand words in that poem. Well, <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, just in case you're not familiar with our show yet, I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I am joined by. The guy who's going to have to do all this editing, Michael Farmer, he is an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you doing this February afternoon, Michael? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. After this, I have to go to a uh, committee meeting, so I'm doing less well than I normally am, but pretty well nevertheless. Well, you know, I, I, I guess that makes the podcast even more delightful because it is not a committee meeting. During the committee meeting, I can remember the podcast as I remember what happened in my f- former lives. There you go. Uh, also <laughs> joining us, the, uh, the wonderful deep voice you heard reading some of those stanzas, David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. David, how are you this afternoon? Oh, pretty decent. Can't complain. Good, good, good. Hey, we've got a lot of listener feedback this time around. Uh, and as per usual, because we're getting so much these days, which is a great problem to have, if we missed you, then send us a message and note that we have. Uh, one person, guys, that I think we ought to note that I, I think we've neglected the last couple times around is Paul, and I'm going to say Schleifer, although it might be Schleifer. Uh, Paul, if you could send us a pronunciation guide, that would be great. Uh, he has been <laughs> commenting on the last few episodes uh, really since the year 2013 started, offering some really nice comments on our Facebook page. Um, and I'm just kind of looking at, you know, down the line here. I mean, he's made comments on the musical theater episode. He made a comment on, let's see here. And, of course, now I can't find any of these others, right? Um, but, Paul, we want to thank you for your comments. Oh, he made a comment on a uh, a roger olson post that i had linked to on the podcast page again Mm -hmm. good stuff that he's doing there uh looking down the line here also want to mention hrothgar who first of all has an awesome screen name he's been commenting on the blog uh Mm -hmm. he has i mean really i mean every time he comments he brings up you know several texts that are in conversation with what we're doing it's great fun to read his comments 
Uh, Michael, you said we'd received an email or two as well. Do you want to hit those? Yeah, we got one from Zach Wendling. He says that he enjoyed our episode on forests. He wanted to bring out a few points on resource depletion. I believe he's an environmental scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be what he, uh, the email suggests. He says, first, my knowledge of ancient Greece is mostly based on John R. Hale's Lords of the Sea. I recall that b- building the Athenian uh, th- th- thalassocracy, and I don't know what that word means, I must confess, led to the... Uh, de- it, it is the... I mean, etymologically, it is the seizure of power by means of the sea. I Salasa is the sea, and then Kratzain, of course, is to seize power. Well, that led to the deforestation of Attica. All those ships required lots of wood. The upshot is that, like most economies fueled by conquest, the dependence on trade rose proportionally to the success of the fleet. More allies led to more forests turned into ships, led to more allies, and so on. The export of Greek culture is then at least partly fueled by the limited availability of forests and the expansion of Athenian trade networks to procure more raw materials. <laughs> Second, this brings up the fact that forests are not necessarily a renewable resource, at least not on most human timescales. Consider that almost all of the U.S. east of the Mississippi was clear-cut by the early 20th century. These old-growth forests house complex ecosystems with assemblages of tree species we rarely see today, and at such dimensions we can scarcely imagine. Modern Americans, when they do venture into the woods, are usually greeted by young-growth forests, often artificially planted and in small acreages that fail to resemble anything like the truly wild lands that grew here natively. I can't help but think that the effects on the imagination are quite different between what we think of as the woods, eroded land filled with young, thin maples and beeches, and what earlier residents encountered, oaks and hickories rooted in deep soil. That is an excellent point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was I was thinking about how when I was in uh, elementary school I was told that that trees are a renewable resource and that may be true in the sense that wood is a renewable resource but um, thinking outside of capitalism the forest itself is not <laughs> third right, right. Third, he says, I imagine the sense of loss might also be reflected in art, too. While not a contemporary work, characters in Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall wistfully speak of what Great Britain was like before all the great forests were cut down. As far as I can tell, this loss would have occurred many generations ago, but these forests somehow still reside in the popular memory. I'd be interested to know whether this theme comes up anywhere else, either in English lit or elsewhere around the world. Hmm. And I mean, David, that's one I would want to kick your way because, I mean, the obviously the deforestation of Fangorn is something that immediately comes to mind when you hear that description. Oh, that's true. That's true. Well, and also the, um, well, uh, the old forest, which is right next to the Shire. Um, it can only ah, be what uh-huh. it is because it is an old forest. <laughs> right. Not, not a new wood. We also got an email from K-Motor. Uh, which I, I I found very amusing. I you know I don't know about you guys, but uh, K Motor is usually pretty amusing. Oh yeah, but I mean, first of all, he said that he has picked up a an anthology of uh, poetry and selected prose of John Donne, which is always a good thing to pick up. Uh, awesome. He says that he is almost pro, almost extreme proto existentialist in some parts, which I have to admit I'm going to have to go back and revisit John Donne to see that. Um. But this part I do agree with. He also had a very proto, quote, British wit, close quote, about him as well. No doubt about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The other part, though, is what really amused me was uh, he talked about three uh, preachers that we talk about a fair bit, both, you know, on the podcast (laughs) and on the blog. 
Uh, and N.T. Wright, he says, I thought he was very good and really learned without being too snobbish. I'll agree with that. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, which I talk about a fair bit, he was also a good preacher. Didn't wow me like Wright, but you at least knew that he knew what he was saying and he didn't put me to sleep. Okay, I, I like Brueggemann about as well as I do Wright, maybe even a little bit better. But then when he gets to the third one, that's when it gets really good. And I'm going to read this at length because it was so good. Uh, and, of course, all, all three of you guys favorite evangelical Brian McLaren. I didn't know what to think going into it uh, because you guys had me thinking he was some supervillain preacher guy who lured his victims with a smile, a twirling mustache, and quasi-Hegelian. Turns out he was a garden-variety hippie preacher. Not really my type, but not as threatening as I thought. And then in parentheses, <laughs> must be a cultural thing. I, I would agree that he's a garden variety hippie preacher. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it is amusing that, you know, I and I don't think I've written about Brian McLaren here recently, have I, Michael? Uh, no, not since that, uh, that one review that raised so many uh, eyebrows. Yeah, yeah, and... I, and you know, his most recent book, I think, got lost in the mail. Uh, I was supposed to receive a copy from Homebrew Christianity. <laughs> yeah, actually. I'm sure, no, I'm no, sure no. that was an error. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Here, here's why. Here's why. Because there was actually a substitute uh, delivery person, uh, you know, a postal worker, while I was out of town for Christmas. And about half of my mail just got crammed into my mailbox until it was busting. And the other half got retained at the post office like I requested. So I have this fear that Brian McLaren's most recent book probably sat on my porch for some days before someone walked off with it. So, I but at any rate, that. steal this book. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, his, uh, his bit on Brian McLaren was just, we couldn't not read it. Right. Yeah, uh, also, Todd Howard, real quick, also posted on our Facebook page. Uh, I don't know why I missed this, guys, but he noted a biblical reference to the forest uh, that we completely neglected, namely that the prophet Elisha summoned bears out of the forest uh, <laughs> to kill the. <laughs> yes, yes, to you know, to kill off the young gangsters that were menacing him. So... Go down, you bald head. <laughs> <laughs> but as Michael uh, has educated us, you know, that the Hebrew there is for young man. So, you know, think of this as a, a bunch of young toughs rather than your least favorite third grade Sunday school class. <laughs> Although either one of them I would, uh, I would accept. <laughs> well, at any rate, lots of prelim today, guys. Uh, but let's go ahead and get into discussing this poem uh, Michael, I'm going to lead off with you. I mean, Wordsworth, uh, in the famous preface to lyrical ballads, uh, you know, and that's sort of a, a standard piece that one reads preparing for comprehensive exams. Uh, he describes the first volume, his first volume of poetry thus, quote, the principal object then proposed in these poems was to choose incidents and situations from common life and to relate or describe them throughout as far as was possible in a selection of language really used by men, and at the same time to throw over them a certain coloring of imagination, whereby ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual aspect, close quote. 
now I realize that the ode comes from a collection from several years after lyrical ballads, but what in ode sticks with that, you know, aim of commitment to ordinary language, what departs from it, what's going on there with that project of Wordsworth's? My, I had a class actually read preface to lyrical ballads last week, and I started class by reading a Wordsworth sonnet. I think it was the one composed on Westminster Bridge, and I said, does this fit with his standard? Could you could you read this poem and then devise what he says poetry is supposed to be um, from from the poem itself? And they all said no. And then I turned around and read Ale- some part of Alexander Pope's essay on man. <laughs> and, all uh-huh. the, and all of a sudden, once you see... Once you see the background, once you see the negative image, it becomes very, very clear how much Wordsworth is talking about ordinary events in common language. It, yeah. his, his poems feel artificial to us because English has marched downhill for the last 210 years <laughs> since he wrote it. But uh, compared to what came before, it is quite plain, it is quite straightforward, and it is very natural and readable. And I'll just point out a few reasons why. Number one, he largely avoids uh, what we might call Miltonic inversions. Mm -hmm. So you think Mm -hmm. of uh, Satan crying out, oh, me, miserable, instead of, oh, miserable me. I'm sure Nathan can give me 45 other examples. It's very (laughs) characteristic of 17th and 18th century British poetry. Am I right? Oh, yeah, you're right. Although I can't produce examples because my memory is not that good. Wordsworth um, largely avoids them. Um, As you mentioned, this is about seven years after he wrote the preface. He seems to be moving away from it just a little bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. In that last stanza, he says, I love the brooks which down their channels fret. I I think the earlier Wordsworth would have looked askance at that line. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the mm-hmm. most part, again, again uh, compared especially to... Or what, he askance would have looked. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> c- compared to what came before, and for the most part, Wordsworth is avoiding that sort of tortured construction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can make your case for the Miltonic inversion if you want to, but I think most people find it fairly tortured. Especially, <laughs> oh, me, miserable. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll grant that. I'll grant that. <laughs> Second, Wordsworth, in this poem, and in most of his other poems, is very big on enjambment, which is, um, for those of you who missed your freshman comp classes, enjambment is where uh, you don't pause at the end of a line, you keep going because there's no punctuation at the end. And And so while his poetry has meter, and while it has rhyme, when you read it out loud, as I'm sure you noticed from our reading it out loud, it feels much more conversational than something again like Pope, which in in which you pause at the end of every line. Now, um, intimations of I always want to call it imitations. Intimations <laughs> of uh, of immortality has a less structured rhyme scheme than a lot of Wordsworth's more famous poems. He seems to be I I didn't look into this. Maybe one of you can tell me, but he seems to be not sticking with any set. Uh, meter and rhyme scheme he seems to be well it has meter and it has rhyme every line rhymes with some other uh, line uh, it, it seems to be mostly at his uh, at his leisure when he mm-hmm. does that and so that that too makes it feel much more uh, well prosaic is probably a good word because in that same essay Wordsworth says there shouldn't be really a difference between the quality of poetry and the quality of prose Poetry should be prosaic. 
it, it's not angelic. It bleeds the blood of man, or he says something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think once you get past our own cultural bias against it, and you have to remember too, we're coming after a hundred years of free verse. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Once you once you get past that and examine it in its context, it is rather radically ordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things he's talking about are things most of us have experienced, maybe not so much in his philosophical musings, but in, in terms of the actual events he's talking about, I think it's things that everybody more or less goes through. And, mm-hmm. and he describes it in more or less common language. Pretty good. David, uh, is there anything you would add to that? Well, uh, Uh-oh. I, I don't know. I, I the the apostrophes when he's when he's dropping things. Um, I, I I agree that compared compared to Pope and Milton, this is I mean this is ordinary folk. Um, but still, line four. I can't imagine meeting anyone in life who'd say appareled in celestial light. That that that's. <laughs> But, yeah, but that, David, even that sounds Miltony, or if, actually, apparelled in light celestial would be more Miltony, I guess. Even the dropped e there, even even the apostrophe you mentioned, mm-hmm. makes it more common because he's not saying apparelled, apparelled, or apparelled in celestial light. He's saying no, it as true. as people would actually say it. Apparelled, yeah. Okay, okay. Maybe maybe it just looks more artificial than it sounds, but. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I generally I'm going to agree. Uh, generally, I agree, Michael. I think this is more maybe reads a little more philosophically ruminative than some of the stuff that was in lyrical balance. Um, mm-hmm. But again, that's 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 based more on my memory of lyrical ballads. Um, this one is this one's definitely doing a lot more philosophical heavy lifting, I think, and so. Um, that's that second half of his, uh, showing ordinary things presented to the, uh, presenting ordinary things to the mind in an unusual aspect. I think he's definitely doing that. Mm-hmm. And you left out the most famous formulation in the preface, Nathan, which is poetry is the spontaneous overflow of feeling <laughs> recollected in tranquility, mm-hmm. which, which you also have. He's talking about powerful emotions he once felt. That he no longer feels. Right, mm-hmm. right. And yes, I did avoid the phrase that everyone knows from the preface to lyrical ballads, but I liked the preface I'd... before it was cool. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, well, David, I I didn't think that I would go Anglo-Saxon with this, uh, <laughs> but now that I've taken some old English classes in grad school and I know what an ubisunt poem is. Uh, the first four stanzas of this ode uh, recall that sort of poetry when I read them. Uh, now, I could be wrong about that, so take a couple minutes to tell our listeners uh, what the Ubisunt tradition is in Anglo-Saxon poetry and whether or not I'm right to see that tradition echoing here in the opening of Wordsworth's ode. Well, um, Ubisunt uh, in Anglo-Saxon poetry, or what... Uh Dogmas Johnny Evans likes to call the Huarquam motif. Um, he doesn't like to concede it to the Latins. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
is a uh, a trait of elegy, um, the poetic genre elegy in particular. It's a moment in elegy in which the speaker remembers how things used to be and uh, contrasts that with the way things are now, uh, ba basically noting the absence of all of the um, of all the beloved things, the treasured things, the prized things from the past that are now gone. So the 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 most uh, famous example of this is from the old English poem, The Wanderer, where um, we we have this passage um, uh, in which this this the speaker who is an ex an exile, having lost you know everyone he loved, including his king and all of his friends. He says, where is the horse gone? Where are the man? Where are the giver of gold? Where is the feasting place? And where are the pleasures of the hall? Um, I mourn the gleaming cup, the warrior in his corselet, the glory of the prince. How that time has passed away, darkened under the shadow of night as if it had never been. And so that, that's, the, uh, that's, the, that's where Dr. Evans gets his huarquam. Where has the horse gone? Huarquam. Um, and that's in Latin, ubi sunt. Where are they? That's 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 what ubi sunt says. Where where are these things gone? And I think that fits, um, you know, particularly when you um, when you look at the second stanza, um, where it's uh, it's talking about you know he the the speaker can see rainbows and that roses are beautiful and that the moon is the moon is beautiful and starry nights and sunshine and all the rest of it uh, but yet i know where i go that there hath passed away a glory from the earth and so a big part of these first four stanzas yes is the speaker acknowledging the absence of something prized and so it 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 it, it does seem to be doing something similar to um, to that moment in old English elegy, um, though I think this is a bit more like um, the old English poem than the wife's lament. Um, the wanderer's pretty apocalyptic. You, you've only got this one this one speaker standing amid ruins, musing on how the whole world's going to end. Um, in the wife's lament, instead, you have a single woman whose her personal life has fallen apart, you know, her world has fallen apart, but at the same time she can still see other people. Um, and and so her um, her sadness at having lost what she prized is in some way deepened by the fact that she can still observe others who are happy um, in their enjoyment of what she herself has lost. And so I, I think I think the first four stanzas seem a little bit more, a little bit more like that. Though I don't think our speaker is is made more miserable by watching the lambs skip around and the shouting shepherd boys and so forth. He stops himself, right? I mean, he 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 is inclined to feel more miserable by that, and then he kind of rebukes himself for it. Yeah, yeah. There's a moment where it could take that turn, but then it doesn't because. Well, because our we have a speaker who is not going to roll around in his misery. <laughs> he's gonna he's going to think about what it what exactly it is that he's um, feeling like he's lost or lost touch with. So I don't I, I don't know whether or not Wordsworth has been reading Anglo-Saxon poetry or not. 
but I don't necessarily think that you have to have read Anglo-Saxon poetry in order to make that move. <laughs> um, seems like a pretty human thing to me, but still, um, it's it's cool to sort of put them put them next to each other. Not knowing the term Ubisunt or Rothgar or whatever that English term, old English term you used was, I saw Bar those. Oh. <laughs> I, I saw those first four stands as, a, as being about disenchantment mm. um, the, the world was once full of the presence of you know take your pick and, and it is no longer he, he, the world has been literally disenchanted all the magic has gone out of it mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I, I, I think that's fair and I mean, then, what do you think Nathan and then by the end of the poem you get it, you get it back you get re-enchantment although of a different sort Right, which yeah. generally isn't part of that Ubisoon tradition, if I remember right, David. There's no sense that it's going to come back. No, no. I mean, the, the only, the only notion, well, the only notion in the Wanderer is that um, we're we're not going to get those things back. So we'd better put our eggs in another in another basket. Okay. Um, an eternal basket instead of a temporal one. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of what he does here. Kind of what it, kind of what he does here, but I think um, he he he's he's somehow able to do both because he has invested those childhood moments with uh, um, with the eternal. Yeah. So so that so that moving on to the eternal is also reclaiming the thing that was lost, um, which which is not a move that the wanderer can make. Mm-hmm. He goes around and around and around and around. Is that right? He throws uh, open his shirt and there's Rosie on his chest. <laughs> I don't. I don't get it. This is a song from the fifties called "The Wanderer." Oh, yeah, okay. Yes, I. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was bringing a little low culture into your high culture. So oh, I, I, mean, I, 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 I don't mind that. I just happened to miss this particular one. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, I want to go to the fifth stanza, moving on with this poem. I mean, once we get there, I mean, we're into the territory of pre-existing souls and reincarnation or something resembling those things. Uh, talk to us about the images in, you know, stanzas five through eight, roughly speaking, and the extent to which you see, you know, Athenian or Hindu or other conceptions of a pre-existing soul uh, that are you know, at play there or not, if you don't think they're there. Oh, I think they're there. I don't know about the Hindu stuff, but I can talk about the Greek conceptions. Um, the fifth stanza begins with that line, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, uh, which is one of the many lines from this, this poem that have passed into common usage. Glory in the dream is another one. There's a, there's five or six more that, that people say, and not, you know, I, I didn't know they came from Wordsworth. But I, when I when I read this poem to prepare for the show, I got obsessed with that line: "Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting." Because I was sure he was quoting Shakespeare and turning it around. Because I was sure Shakespeare had called death a sleep and a forgetting, but uh, nothing I could find said that. Hmm. Even so, it seems like he is taking a traditional conception of death. So you think of something like uh, John Donne's "Death Be Not Proud." Um, and he's turning it on its head and, and saying life itself is this process of forgetting something you already knew before. 
And mm-hmm. that's the first hint in the poem that he's dealing with um, something akin to reincarnation. So uh, he actually appears to me to be suggesting something rather similar to Plato. Plato suggests that between lifetimes, your soul exists off in the ether in the world of the ideal forms, and it, it comes to Earth and you... If you if you could only think with your soul and not with your body and not with your senses, you would be able to access those memories in a way that you can't. And so, you know, this is where you get Platonic ideas like innatism, like uh, the mm-hmm. idea that, that education is about memory rather than about learning. Uh, this shows up mostly in, I think, the Mino and also in the Phaedo and also a little bit in the Phaedrus. It seems to form the background of the Phaedrus in terms of, uh, is it love he's talking about in that section? I believe so. Yeah. But you wouldn't expect that from Wordsworth because Wordsworth is romantic and you would think he would say that the world of nature, the world of our senses, the external physical world is a thing of beauty and revelation. And indeed at times in the poem, he seems to be saying that, but at times he doesn't. So he has that weird stanza, the short one between, I think it's number six, Uh, Mm -hmm. Starts at line 78. Earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own, yearning she hath in her own natural kind, and even with something of a mother's mind and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child, her inmate man, forget the glories he hath known, and that imperial palace whence he came. That is a bedeviling stanza to me. Yeah. (laughs) Because he, he is positing Earth, the physical Earth, nature, as both our mother and some sort of temptress, who comes in and mm-hmm. tempts us with lesser beauties, lesser goods that steal us away from the immortality that our souls half remember and, and remember less than half as, as we go on. Because unlike Plato, he seems to suggest that when you're a child, you know it better and it is a steady forgetting the further into your life you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not you an got, entire forgetfulness. <laughs> right. But by the, by the end of your life, you would just barely remember. Right, right. And it's interesting. This is one of those things, uh, Chris Hare, who's, you know, my department chair and colleague and friend, he, he's actually teaching British authors too right now. And he said that, uh, when he brought up, you know, this conception of childhood as, you know, distinctively romantic, right. You know, the idea that as you age, you forget the divine, uh, he had students basically say, well, hasn't everyone always thought that? So this is one of those interesting oh. ideas that, you know, has become naturalized, if you will. Yeah, but, you know, they probably think people always thought of teenagers. Well, yeah, yeah, point granted, yeah. point granted. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I asked about Hindu, Michael, and I mean, I, you know... I, I, don't, know enough, of, I don't know enough Hindu um, theology to be able to, to answer the right. question, that's all. I just know that here in the, you know, early 19th century, you know, as the... Uh, Indian, the Anglo-Indian connection becomes stronger, uh, that there's a lot of people writing about Eastern this and Eastern that, so I wondered if that was anything you saw in there. But like, I mean, like you, Michael, I'm just barely literate in things Hindu, so listeners, if you can help us out on that, that would be handy as well. Is there anything else you would say, Michael, because I kind of cut you off there? I want to... I wanna figure out the relationship between nature and these intimations of immortality because I couldn't figure it out. And I was hoping you guys would be able to, especially since I have to uh, teach this poem in a few months. (laughs) 
Doesn't it doesn't it seem like he's saying that the natural world gives you a false conception of uh, of the spiritual world? I mean, isn't that the exact opposite of what you would expect Wordsworth to say, and what he seems to be saying elsewhere in the poem? I think he's simultaneously saying that we come in that we we kind of come into life equipped to more fully appreciate the the beauty and significance of the natural world but at the same time that's something that we bring with us mm-hmm. and the 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 longer we live the more we um the the more we are we are native to the natural world and so it no longer has this kind of um almost illuminating strangeness if that makes sense it becomes normal, mm-hmm. and it's and it's the normalcy that's the enemy. I see. And see, it's interesting. I mean, now that you draw my attention to that stanza in particular, Michael, I realized that I was imposing a sort of Jean-Jacques Rousseau reading on it. You know, because I I, I assumed a sort of distinction between you know society as a force and then nature as a force. But you're right; that sixth stanza collapses that distinction. I mean, it is earth that is making people forget right and you're going to mm-hmm. get the uh, the social thing that i know i'm going to talk about in a little while so i didn't bring it up now but but uh-huh. the, the the natural language of this stanza flows rather naturally into a sort of social disenchantment a, a, a tendency of society to block the connection between the individual and the spiritual world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but again when the romantics talk about society and nature they usually talk about getting away from society to get further into nature to better understand the spiritual world or better experience mm-hmm. the physical uh, the, the the spiritual world right but you're right i mean here he takes a swerve away from that so mm-hmm. i'm sorry michael I, <laughs> I i had never paid that close attention to that stanza but now that i'm looking at it i mean it's it's baffling me as well yeah well i mean if if you're not reading and, and and let you read carefully, and I've got to say the first the 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 first few times when I was kind of when I was revisiting this poem in, in preparation for this, I wasn't paying a close attention, and was just assuming that the whole that the homely nurse of you know of line oh, I think it's line eighty two was just that a homely nursemaid right that that it was you know that it was oh okay old, old, that old nanny is teaching the child you know. To you know, ma- ma- making making the child an inmate and making him forget the glories, but reading it more carefully, um, that homely nurse is just an extension of, you know, that's that's only an extension of the something of a mother that um, in line eighty is is actually referring back to Earth, who yeah. is her. So mm-hmm. so yeah, this is I mean this is weirdly unromantic. <laughs> In, in the big R sense. Hmm. It's almost it's almost as though literary and philosophical movements were abstractions. Yeah. Yeah, there you go, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and see that took me a second, Michael, because I'm, I'm my attention is still <laughs> occupied with You're still disturbed by the, yeah. that stanza. Yeah, I really am. I now that I've paid closer to attention to it, I mean that is Wait. a curious move. Well, I'm glad I'm Wait. not the only one who's confused. Well, could it be that this is just an older Wordsworth than we had in the lyrical ballads? 
and that he's come to realize that, I don't know, in, in some sense, the light that he wanted to celebrate wasn't actually in nature. The light he wanted to celebrate nature wasn't actually in nature itself, so to speak. Well, and this isn't the only kind of disenchanted poem in the collection it comes from. This comes from poems in two volumes from 1807. And, I mean, the most famous poem in that book is not this one. It is, The World is Too Much With Us. Uh, yeah. But hmm. The World is Too Much With Us is difficult to read as well, especially in light of this stanza, because in that poem, he seems to be renouncing civilization. Mm-hmm. Good God, I'd rather be a, a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. There's your Milsonic inversion. He seems mm-hmm. to be renouncing civilization and Christianity in order to get closer to nature. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, but it, but it's a but it's a kind of renunciation that um, that requires him to be able to actually see living gods in the action of nature itself. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's he's he's not just saying I've got to go out and get in the woods and you know talk to a bear. He. <laughs> You know, he wants to be able to listen to the sounds of the ocean and hear them as Triton's horn. You know, and when it talks about him seeing Proteus at the end at the end of that poem, well, Proteus was a shape changing god. You never saw Proteus in his normal form. You saw him as various kinds of ocean animals. So he's basically saying, "I want to see dolphins and think they're Proteus." Mm-hmm. You know. Which is so something it, it, which is something he seems to have been able to do as a child, given given this poem that mm-hmm. he is losing the ability to do. So you may be right, it may be part of the same disenchantment. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it's not simple. <laughs> <laughs> I do well, want to David, say by the oh, way. Go ahead, go ahead. I do want to say I don't see a whole lot of evidence that he is proposing actual reincarnation. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me that what he's actually proposing is the eternal ex- pre-existence of the soul. Yeah, that right. The soul right. exists on, not not that it not that after this life you're going to return to another life, but that before this life you existed in the ether, and after this life you will return to the ether. And so this life is what does he call it? A noisy interlude or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see here. Uh... Well, I mean, I over in stanza nine, he refers to, uh, let's see here, and now I can't find the beginning of that poetic sentence, um, but he refers to it as our noisy years yeah. seem moments in the being of eternal yeah. silence. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's, that's a brief space of time in the midst of this sea, this, mm. this grand expanse of eternity on either side. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, David, I, in yeah. our show prep, you brought up something that I had never been aware of, a connection that I never would have thought to ask you about, but I'm going to ask you about it now. Uh, following <laughs> up on this idea of pre-existing souls, uh, you noted in passing during show prep that this poem is huge in Utah. Uh, what about this poem do Latter-day Saints find so appealing, and what sorts of roles has it taken in their literature? Well, the, the, this is something. This was something interesting. Um, I, I discovered uh, discovered when I was working on my master's. I was taking a, a class on romantic lyric, and 
Intimations of Immortality was one was one that we read. And when I got to the pre-existence of souls uh, part uh, and stanza five, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, I thought, well, you know, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the pre-existence of souls is one of their doctrines. And I know that the uh, kind of the, the founder of, of that church uh, was living around the same time that Romanticism was sort of making its shift across the Atlantic. And so I wondered, you know, do, uh, do LDS folks have anything to say about the intimations of immortality? Turns out that they do, that it's their favorite poem ever, <laughs> and it shows up all over the place. But first I'll just read these lines so that I don't have to quote them from all of their quotes. Our birth is but sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. That's, those are the lines that they, that they love and quote um, endlessly. Um, and this is again. I, I'm just I'm just going to give you some some quotes to give you some idea of its stature. Um, this is from uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, the fifteenth president and prophet. Who uh, we're we're now on this. Uh, they're now on the sixteenth president and prophet. So this is the guy who preceded him. Uh, he's he was giving an address to to women, and he says, uh, "To you women, I wish to issue a challenge tonight." The challenge is to rise to the stature of the divine within you. As you've been reminded, yours is a godly inheritance. I am a child of God is not an idle or meaningless statement. You were there when the morning stars sang together and all the sons and daughters of God shouted for joy. You brought some of that inheritance with you when you came trailing clouds of glory from God who is our home. You were there when there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And then he goes on from there. Um, if you're listening carefully, he cites three different texts. First is from Job. Third is from uh, John's Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. But the one in the middle is Wordsworth. Hmm. Without any reference and without any kind of signal that this is a different sort of text. Um, here's some quotes from the current president. Um and, and prophet of, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, the poet Wordsworth, in his inspired intimations of immortality, inclined our thoughts to that heavenly home from which each of us came. And then he gives the quote. Um, we began our sojourn here by leaving our premortal existence and coming to this earth. The poet Wordsworth captured this journey in his inspired ode to immortality. He wrote, and here comes the quote, um, we note that inspired poets have, for our contemplation of this subject, written moving messages and recorded transcendent thoughts. William Wordsworth penned the truth. And here's the quote. Um, my favorite one is from some guy back in the 70s who was an assistant to the Council of the Twelve, which they're, they're kind of the next, uh, the next up in the hierarchy down from, down from the president, uh, in which he said that the poet Wordsworth caught a flash from the eternal semaphore. Um, I, I thought that one's that that one was lovely, but they keep using the expression inspired. Um, 
uh, one from 1919 when it says, It was this spirit, with a capital S, the Holy Spirit, that inspired the poet Wordsworth, bringing the forgotten past to his remembrance and prompting the utterance of the noble thoughts embodied in those sublime verses, intimations of immortality. You know, that's from, that's from 1919. So they've been doing this for almost 100 years now. Um, it's in their Sunday school curriculum when they're teaching these doctrines um, in Sunday school and their teaching manuals. They pass out copies of this poem, uh, or at least this passage, the stanza from the poem, and they, and they read it as a group. And the teachers um, explain its relevance to, uh, to their belief system. Um, I mean, th- this is it's it's practically scripture um, mm. for them. Do we know what Wordsworth thought of Mormonism? I mean, it, it would have been still mostly in America by the time he died, mm-hmm. I guess. There was a big Mormon mission in uh, in the UK actually during uh, during Wordsworth's lifetime, um, and we do know what he thought about them because he wrote a letter, um, and I have the passage here. Uh, he wrote a letter to, uh, I believe it was his publisher or editor, Henry Reed. And he says, do you know anything of the wretched set of religionists in your country, superstitionists, I ought to say, called Mormonites or, or Latter-day Saints? <laughs> well, that, may, that makes it clear, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, would you believe it? A niece of Mrs. Wordsworth has just embarked with a set of the deluded followers of that wretch in an attempt to join their society. And if you chance to hear anything about her, pray let us know. <laughs> so basically, his niece converted, and he's peeved. Um, yeah. BYU maintains a collection of William Wordsworth's works, and they they actively try to acquire all editions and all the biographies and all the criticism. Um, between 1939 and 1974, the student literary periodical at BYU was called Y Magazine. After the river in in Tintern Abbey, um, Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey. Wow. Um, He was baptized by proxy into the Mormon Church in 1887. Now, along with Burns, Byron, Goethe, Washington Irving, Samuel Johnson, and Walter Scott, but still. I I have no words. Yeah. So, so yeah, this this poem and that stanza of this poem is is a big deal um the most the, the most amazing thing uh that i found so far is an article from 1987 by an english professor at byu called uh the book of mormon in the english literary context of 1837 in which he tries to wrestle with the fact that the only recognition that wordsworth ever gave in his life to their church is as um uh, a wretched set of religionists. And so basically he's trying to explain away the bad press that Mormons were getting that were the reason why Wordsworth didn't like them when they really liked him. Well, that, that, you know, that, that may very well be so. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it may very well be so, you know, because yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 the status of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in, in England at the time was being discussed a lot. But he's, um, but he's a Mormon now is the point, right? Because he was... Because, it, well, yeah, he was, he was baptized by proxy. And uh, because in Mormon theology, um, 
those in torment after death get uh, get a second chance. Um, being baptized by proxy permits them to take off and uh, to take advantage of that second chance. And so, um, if you are, you know, if you, if you accept their theology, then you know, of course, Wordsworth accepted the second chance. Um, so, so yeah, he he knows better now. I'll if be you're, if you're <laughs> a Mormon. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't know what to do with it. It's it's just as it's just to say that there's a whole uh, a whole subculture in the U.S. for whom this poem is immensely important. Huh. And who to thunk? I'll say. <laughs> well, Michael, I. <laughs> I think we're all a little dazed now. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let, let's turn our attention away from Utah and over towards New England. Uh, I can't <laughs> help when I'm reading the closing stanzas of Ode. Uh, I can't help but think of early Emerson, especially his address to the Harvard Divinity graduates. His focus on the self is all great religious thought. Uh, what connections between Ode and Emerson's early work do you see going on, and in what ways does Emerson depart from that later in his writing career? Well, Emerson um, largely forms his poetic philosophy after meeting and reading Wordsworth. So his aesthetics seem to be very much informed by Wordsworth's uh, preface. I always want to call it the prelude, but that's a different thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, he quotes The World is Too Much With Us in the Divinity School address that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing you see is a uh, an insistence on a personal connection to immortality, to eternity, to divinity, one that can't be mediated by other things, one that has to be built on experiences, built on um, personal feelings, built on personal encounters. Uh, in Wordsworth, you see a a fleshing out, or in, excuse me, in Emerson, you see a fleshing out of what Wordsworth says about um, society in, in this poem. Um, this is line 103. The little actor cons another part, filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her and her equipage as if his whole vocation were endless imitation. You can see mm -hmm. in the Divinity Address Emerson nodding his head to that. Um his, you know, one of his big ideas early on is that we imitate too much. Instead of forming our own religious systems, we accept the ones put forth by other people. That that revelation, as Thomas Paine says, can only be to one person. It can't be to multiple people. Well, Emerson says something very similar, and I think he does so with the tacit approval of Wordsworth here in that that line about endless imitation. Interestingly enough, Wordsworth says humorous stage. Um, I believe Emerson calls it his comic role. So hmm. I, I okay. wonder I wonder if Emerson is directly, well, not I guess you can't directly paraphrase, but directly drawing <laughs> from intimations of immortality in that Divinity School address. Hmm. But certainly they have a large number of concerns in common. Now what eventually happens is, over the course of his career, Wordsworth gets more and more orthodox, um, more mm -hmm. and more conservative, and Emerson, to put it mildly, does not. Uh, <laughs> so 
Wordsworth, I think most people could agree, ends his career by being some sort of Christian, despite his pre- stated preference for a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. Mm-hmm. And Emerson definitely does not. Emerson doesn't even end as a Unitarian. He ends as an Emersonian, a transcendentalist. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so there's that. All right. Yeah, I mean, one other passage. I mean, it's from that same stanza, Michael, you know, when he uh, gets into this business of, again, I'm looking for the beginning of the poetic sentence, uh, thou little child yet glorious in the might of heaven-born freedom on that being's height, why with such earnest pains dost thou provoke the years to bring inevitable yoke thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife? Full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I just hear that, you know, uh, that I mean, spitting scorn for society and tradition that, uh, again, I think of, you know, in self-reliance, in divinity school address, in American scholar, uh, you know, I, I, that's interesting, though, the very opposite trajectories that the two people take. Well, and Wordsworth, or Emerson, rather, was never... I think what we would recognize as a Christian, he began his life as a Unitarian. Right. And, and he ends, you know, further to the left of uh, traditional Christianity than that. Wordsworth, I think has kind of a U in the middle of his life. He goes, I don't want to say he goes away from the church. I don't know Wordsworth that well, but I know that he, he, he clearly moves toward pantheism in the early part of the 19th century and intimations of immortality is part of that. And then mm-hmm. he moves back toward the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. David, were you going to chime in there? Oh, just I, I, I don't know what um, what traces this has on Emerson, um, but I know the ode was influential on um, Alcott, Louisa May's daddy, um, mm, Bronson. Yes, Bronson, Amos Bronson Alcott, uh, who was an experimental educator, and I'm. Uh, I was well in, in the course that I took. Uh, the, it, it was mentioned that he basically took uh, took the ode intimations of immortality as his as his theory for how to approach young children. Um, basically, he he he, uh, he he built a theory of, of early childhood schooling around the idea of hey, let's keep them trailing clouds of glory and help them remember stuff. Um, hmm. I'm not really sure how well that worked, but you know, <laughs> for what it's worth, I think he I think he ran in the same pack as Emerson, if I remember correctly. I'll be. Well, anyway, David, taking a look at, at the clock and heading for the gates. Uh, if you were to take this home <laughs> in theological directions, uh, what maneuvers of appropriation, resistance, or other sorts would you make? Uh, in other words, let's take it around the horn here at the end and do a little bit of theology with Wordsworth. Uh, when your little sermon wraps up, pass the microphone over to Farmer and then I'll wrap things up. Okay. Um, first, I, I, I don't think that we can run with the whole uh, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting thing. I, I don't know that that's an, an, an option for, um, for Orthodox Christians. Um, if for no other reason than that, I, I think if I accepted that, I'd have to end up being a Pelagian, and that I have even more problems with. 
So, yeah. However, the way he talks about um, his recollections of of happiness as a child and the way the world seemed as a child, um, the kind of glow to it, reminds me a lot of um, the way C.S. Lewis talks about his his early childhood in Surprised by Joy and uh, the idea that um, that there's a there's a there's a kind of homesickness um, for for memories of of beauty or happiness in childhood that kind of lingers with us, and Lewis points at that homesickness as uh, as an evidence that we actually do have a home elsewhere, not necessarily a place that we came from, but certainly a place that um, we are in some sense meant for. And so uh, I think I think I could I could point to um, intimations of immortality as uh, a meditation on on that particular uh, that particular instinct in humans um, homesickness for a place we haven't been um, in spite of the fact that Wordsworth seems to think we actually were there at one point that's my sermon. Michael. Mine, predictably enough, involves suffering. Um, the, dis- the disenchantment that Wordsworth goes through in those first four stanzas is he never really experiences reenchantment in the sense of getting back what he lost. He says, nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass. There's another famous phrase of glory in the flower. We will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind, in the primal sympathy which having been must ever be. Hmm. Um, it is the struggle itself that gives value to life, it seems like, for him. But this struggle gives more value than if the original enchantment had actually, had remained. Because he says in the very last stanza, I love the brooks which down their channels fret even more than when I tripped lightly as they. So, in going through the process of disenchantment, he has experienced not just a semi-return, but a semi-return that brings him back to a different place, a higher place, a place more mature, more adult, um, more tinged with sorrow, and thus it seems for him more meaningful. Hmm. And he is able in that last stanza to look again at the natural world and see the spiritual world. The, to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. Mm-hmm. So he's not returned to where he was. He can't go back to childhood. He can't go back to innocence. He can't go back to thinking the world is literally, literally magic. But he can go back to seeing something worth seeing in it. Hmm. Is that the end of your sermon? That's the end of my sermon. Oh, all right. Very good. Very good. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to take mine in a couple directions. One is. This is another one of those poems uh, that I like to point to as evidence that poetry is influencing the imaginations of the people around you, whether they know it or not. Uh, and I, I tipped my cards too early uh, when I talked about, you know, the English majors who thought that everyone has always believed that children are pre-existing in heaven before they are born. Uh, it's one of those things that, I mean, I see over and over and over again. Not really, I mean, not really among people who I think of as sort of syncretists in a sort of traditional, you know, shame on them sort of sense. But I mean, 
<laughs> in people I think of as fairly conventionally evangelical, right? Uh, you know, the the preacher story, which I have heard in sermons, uh, where, you know, the four-year-old goes to his infant brother and says, what does God look like? I've forgotten in the years that I've been around, or however it's phrased, you know, probably more preciously than that. Uh, that is fairly common piety. And it's one of those things where, again, uh, I think that if we take it in a sort of demythologized direction, like Michael just did, where we say, yes, childhood is a moment where you experience things differently uh, without necessarily saying, and therefore we should take on a sort of neoplatonic preexistence of the soul doctrine. Uh, I agree with David on that point. Uh, I, th I think that, you know, studying and thinking about and meditating on poems like this can really help us to think about uh, the shapes of our own experience and the fact that our experience does get shaped by the poetry that's come before us, whether we know it or not. Mm. Well, that is what we've got time for today. Uh, first of all, thank you, David. Thank you, Michael, for having this conversation with me. Uh, next week's show is going to be Michael's, I believe. Nope, David's. No, it's going to be David's shoot. I knew, it. well, I had a 50-50 chance and I missed it. <laughs> and and David, uh, tell us what we're going to be talking about next week. Well, Michael and I love your idea of talking about a single poem so much, we're going to do more of it. Um, next week, we're going to turn from Wordsworth to Coleridge, and I'm going to make you guys talk about Kubla Khan, and it is going to be awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. Very good, very good. While you are waiting for that show, oh, listeners, you can find us on the web at christianhumanist.org. You can find us on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, write us a recommendation, give us some stars. We enjoy all those things, and they, they increase our exposure so that other people can get in on the conversation. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, and we will try to respond to you on our episodes, although... We have the embarrassment of riches right now that we're getting so much response that it's hard to get it all in. That's great. Keep it rolling in. Uh, in the meantime, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. Nothing to mourn, we die and die until, until we're born, recast as fall.